topic you're listening to is what is happiness. This download contains audio from two public radio shows. One is Talk of the Nation, and the other is Speaking of Faith. You'll also hear a clip from the Dalai Lama's book, The Art of Happiness. The purpose of these clips is to, to explore what happiness is. The two primary issues are, one, how is happiness defined? And number two, is there a structural construct we can use to identify these types of happiness? Hypothesis number one. This first hypothesis that we need to explore is whether happiness is just a product of our mind and happiness is simply what we choose in any given situation. Perhaps William Shakespeare was correct when he said, "'Tis nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so." If we follow this line of thinking, then all people could be happy in all potential situations, both good situations and bad situations. Daniel Gilbert gives a great descriptive illustration of this quote in his TED Talk podcast that you'll watch later on in the class. Conversely to this first hypothesis is that all people would be equally unhappy in all potential scenarios, regardless of whether most rational people would rate the experience as good. I mean, we all certainly know people who we think should be happy, yet despite their good fortune, they're not happy. We also may know people, or at least have read about people, who despite their hardships seem to be genuinely happy. So maybe this first hypothesis holds promise, and our happiness is really just about the way we think. Maybe there's some truth to the idea that our happiness is, is just a product of our thinking. And if we could train our mind in a way that accepts both the good and the bad events in our life, then we can learn to be happy in both situations. This concept will be explored further in the podcast you listen to from Arizona State titled Building Healthy Lifestyles. Just this, Mindfulness Practice Programs and Potential. You'll watch the mindfulness section. You'll watch that, that video clip during the mindfulness section of the class. Another hypothesis that deserves exploration is one which espouses that our happiness is determined by the circumstances of our life and the situations we're in. Following this hypothesis, we might say that our gratitude and appreciation of life circumstances is the root of happiness. The potential problem with this hypothesis is that it requires a foundation of good circumstances to be happy. And without these positive circumstances, it would be quite difficult to be happy. An illustration of this hypothesis is that living in a comfortable environment contributes to happiness, as does living without tragedies. This hypothesis can be easily tested by looking at individuals from a wide variety of countries 
with a wide variety of life circumstances. But is this the case? Studies have shown that in fact this is not the case. If you consider the people in wealthy countries are no happier than those in countries that are not as wealthy, and if we equate wealth to having more positive circumstances in your life, then the positive circumstances theory will not hold up. Let me review where we are right now. The first theory was that all positive experiences are just a product of our mind and the way we think. The second theory or hypothesis was one that says we are a product of our circumstances and people with more positive circumstances will have a more positive view of life and thus be happier. Now, there's one other hypothesis that does deserve a bit of exploration. That hypothesis says that happiness is simply for those who are lucky, people who have some sort of happy gene. So if you have happy genes, you'll therefore be happy regardless of the circumstances in your life and regardless of how well you train your mind. To those people, life circumstances are largely irrelevant. They'd be happy in a large house or in a small house. They'd be happy living on the beach or in the desert, living in prosperity, or living in poverty. This approach would make this class largely irrelevant because you would have your pre-established level of happiness and regardless of what you do, that level won't change. Throughout the course of this class, it's very likely that you'll determine that happiness is a combination of all of these hypotheses. explored a few possible explanations for happiness, we really need to look at what happiness is. So the next part of this audio will cover what is happiness. You will listen to a few audio clips. One will be from the show Speaking of Faith, which talks about our founding fathers and what they thought about happiness. The other audio clip will come from a national public radio talk show called Talk of the Nation. On this show, Martin Seligman, the former president of the American Psychological Association and the founding father of positive psychology, spoke about three different types of happiness. Defining what happiness is is the first task that we have to figure out in this class. So we're going to start with the founding fathers and think of what the Founding Fathers were thinking when they inserted the phrase, the pursuit of happiness, into our Declaration of Independence. There's an audio clip that I'm going to play from the show Speaking of Faith, where the people on the show talk about what they felt the pursuit of happiness meant in the time of the Declaration of Independence. Did it mean that we were free to pursue life's pleasures? Did it mean that we were free to pursue a life of virtue? Did it mean that we were free to train our minds to think in a way that we would be happy? What exactly did, does that mean? This is important because the title of the class is Understanding and Developing Happiness. Without an understanding of what happiness is, the class would actually be useless. So it's important 
that we come to a conclusion of what exactly happiness means and how we will define it for the purposes of this class. So here's your first audio clip about what the Founding Fathers thought about the pursuit of happiness. Words in the Declaration of Independence giving that you know this right unalienable right that Americans have claimed since then to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know, in some ways that's such an extraordinary phrase. And also I wonder if it's a phrase that stands in contrast to spiritual values and spiritual impulses. Has it gotten us into trouble? <laughs> well, it may have gotten us into trouble, um... You mean that phrase? Yeah. It gotten, the well, pursuit it of happiness into, at the center of our national life. Yeah, that may have gotten us into trouble because we have an adolescent view of happiness. What is happiness to us? People say, oh, I, blah, blah, blah. I, I don't know. I just, I know it makes me feel good. Well, feeling good, having nice things, it ain't happiness. What do you think Thomas Jefferson understood in that phrase? He meant there's no happiness without virtue. Mm. You can't have happiness unless there's virtue. And so for Jefferson, it didn't mean having whatever, just whatever you want. It meant well-being in the uh, traditions that they studied. Uh, they were very highly educated in classical thought. Happiness, a better translation is the word, is well-being. And well-being doesn't mean continual or lots of pleasure. It doesn't mean egoistic satisfaction. It means being what you are supposed to be as a human being. So happiness implies a relationship to a truer self within yourself. And I think Jefferson meant that. And I think if you look in the nature of, of the great spiritual traditions, how they look and understand human nature, it's part of the essence of a human being that to love, to, to feel care for others. And we have a very impoverished set of ideas about the human self being just a complicated animal with a complicated brain who evolved out of the slime. That is not a vision that is very profound of what human being is, nor is it very logical. Now we'll get a much more modern view of happiness, and this will come from Martin Seligman. This talk that he gave was from the talk show, Talk of the Nation, where he discusses three different types of happiness that he's defined. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. You buy a lottery ticket or hope for a rich relative to die, sure that cash is your key to happiness. You flip through Williams-Sonoma catalogs or Martha by mail, dreaming, if only I had a few very good things to decorate my home, my life would be better, and maybe a new home to go with it. Not so, says psychologist and professor at the University of Pennsylvania, Martin Seligman. As one of the founders of the positive psychology movement, he spent the better part of his career trying to swim upstream against the current of most psychological analysis that focuses on our problems. Seligman says if we focus instead on our strengths, we can teach ourselves to live a more productive, more meaningful life to blossom. He also suggests that it's, the, uh, that, it, uh, that it's in fact the psychoanalysts' focus on our individual problems that perpetuates wallowing in our pain instead of emphasizing what's positive in our lives. And while this might seem to be a philosophy designed for a prosperous, peaceful time, Seligman argues that it applies as much or more in difficult times like those we're in now. 
Sure, you say. We've all read prescriptions for success and happiness. Sure, fire formulas for happiness and fulfillment. This is different. How? Skeptics, advocates, and the curious are invited to join the conversation. If focusing on happiness isn't the trick to a better life, what do you suggest? Or does this silver bullet sound a little too good to you to be true? Our number here in Washington is 800-989-8255. That's 800-989-TALK. And our email address is TOTN at NPR.org. Martin Seligman joins us now from member station WHYY to explain the ideas expressed in his latest book, Authentic Happiness, Using the New Positive Psychology to Realize Your Potential for Lasting Fulfillment. And uh, Martin Seligman, welcome to Talk of the Nation. Thank you, Neil. Hello. Hello. Uh, can you uh, by, begin by explaining the guiding principles of positive psychology? Well, it starts with three notorious misconceptions of our commonplace view of, of happiness. The first is that somehow, out of getting rid of our bad feeling, out of getting rid of depression, anxiety, anger, happiness emerges. But what emerges, even when we're asymptotically successful, as therapists, getting rid of bad feeling is emptiness, zero. The uh, second misconception is that happiness comes from externals, from money and climate and power. And the third misconception, the worst of all, there's only one kind of happiness. In my view, there are three very common and very different roads to a satisfactory life. The first is the pleasant life, which is our usual conception of happiness. The second is the good life, a life of flow, immersion, absorption. And the third is the meaningful life, a life in which you use what's best inside you in the service of something larger than you are. We're going to get to a, a broader discussion of those uh, three approaches uh, uh, in a few minutes. But I, I wanted to ask you first, what's the science behind this? Well, there are three different domains in which, for the last five years, a great deal of scientific activity has taken place. The first is in, in the domain of positive emotion, questions of how does it uh, differ from nation to nation, what is the effect of wealth on positive emotion, what is the effect of being an optimizer on positive emotion, and the like. The second is the beginning of a catalog of strengths and virtues, a, uh, the un-DSM of psychology. The DSM? DSM is psychiatry's list of all the diseases, but we've never had a consensus in a way to diagnose the strengths and the virtues, the tests for it, how they're enabled, what the sex ratio is. So the second science behind this is a diagnostic manual of the strengths and virtues and a large and growing scientific understanding of valor, of wisdom, of spirituality, and the like. And the third is the science underlying positive institutions. That is so much of social science is about the negative institutions, about racism and sexism and ageism. We haven't had until the last five to ten years the beginnings of scientific understanding of the positive institutions like free press and democracy and strong family. So those are the three scientific domains of positive psychology. And would those uh, scientific groundings, would that in your mind be what distinguishes this, uh, uh, your book from, from uh, the pop psychology books that I was mentioning earlier? Uh, yes. So this is based on hundreds of doctoral dissertations, 
thousand or more articles and uh, a great deal of research. This is not armchair speculation. I, I do have to ask you, though, you have a happiness formula in the book. Um, I, I don't know about you, but I get pretty skeptical when I see somebody saying they have a formula uh, for happiness, a mathematical formula. Well, there's one formula in the book, and it basically says that your general level of happiness is a function of the circumstances in which you live and the decisions that you make about strength and virtue. True. Okay. Um, let me ask you a little bit about, uh, to expand on those three levels of happiness that you were talking about before, and I guess the first one was the pleasant life. The pleasant life consists in getting as many of the pleasures as you can and having the skills to amplify them. So let, let me give you examples of what I mean, Neil. Uh, I divide the positive emotions into three domains, positive emotions about the past, serenity and contentment, positive emotions about the future, optimism and hope, and the positive emotions about the present, which are the pleasures. What we know about the first, serenity and contentment, is that there are two techniques that have been documented that enhance it. One is gratitude, which increases the positivity amplifies the positivity of past good events, and the other is forgiveness, which takes the sting out of bitterness about bad events. The second kind of happiness in the positive emotion, pleasant life sense, is optimism. I've spent 20 years working on that, and the skills we know about that consist of learning to recognize catastrophic thoughts and learning how to realistically dispute them. And the third and most commonplace view of the pleasant life is the pleasures. And what we know about the pleasures is there are three ways of enhancing the pleasures to get the pleasant life. The first is has to do with the habituation that the pleasures have. All of the pleasures share the following. It's the, like the first taste of French vanilla ice cream. <laughs> first taste is great. Second taste, a few seconds later, is at about 50%. And by the sixth taste, it's cardboard. So the first skill one has to learn about enhancing the pleasures is spacing and varying. The second set of skills, Neil, is savoring, learning to share them with others, learning to take metal photographs, learning to articulate them, learning to take physical souvenirs. And the final technique is what the Buddhists have known far longer than psychologists and mm -hmm. psychiatrists, and that's the technique of mindfulness, being able to look afresh at the pleasures that are happening to you. So that's the pleasant life, getting as many of those things as you can and learning the skills outlined in authentic happiness to amplify them. And I guess we should get now to those other two levels of um, uh, beyond the, uh, the pleasant life. Neil, let me tell you about my friend Len to illustrate the importance of the pleasant life. There are huge differences from people to people, from person to person, in their ability, probably genetic, to experience pleasure and happiness. Everybody is not smiley and giggly and full of good cheer. Len, for example, is a person who is enormously successful in business and in sports, but never felt positive emotion. When Len wins at these things, he flashes a full half smile and goes up to his room to watch Monday Night Football alone. The area that he fails in is love, and that's because American women want smiley, cheerful, ebullient men. 
and Len went through five years of Manhattan psychoanalysis to try to find the sexual trauma that had somehow locked happiness, locked pleasure inside of him. There was none. He grew up in Long Island, uneventful childhood. Len is part of the lower 50%, and part is he's the lower 5% in the ability to experience pleasure. But what Len has in full measure is the ability to get completely absorbed, immersed, into flow in his work and his play. And that, those are people we used to consign to unhappiness. But I want to say that the good life, the life of absorption, immersion, recrafting your work, your love, and your play to use your highest skills and achieve flow is a second and major form of happiness. We're going to talk more about the flow later, but uh, might be familiar to those who uh, remember the athletic expression, in the zone. Um, and, and, the, and the third uh, level, the, the meaningful life. Well, let me just say one thing more about the good life, Neil, and that will explain the meaningful life. The reason I call a book authentic happiness is there are shortcuts to the pleasant life. There are drugs, loveless sex, TV shopping, and the like. There are no shortcuts to the good life. In order to get the good life, in the sense of being absorbed in what you do, you need to know what your strengths are, your highest strengths are, and then you need to recraft your work, your love relationships, and your play to use them as much as you can. And that leads to the third life, the meaningful life. The meaningful life, as I see it, is very much like the good life, except it's using the highest strengths you have in the service of something larger than you are. For many people, uh, and you write about this, uh, that is religion. Well, for many people, it's religion. But for many people, there are many things in the human endeavor other than religion which are much larger than the individual. There's politics. There's volunteerism. There's charity. There's the conversation we're having. <laughs> we're talking with Martin Seligman about how a new field of psychology called positive psychology suggests that people focus not on their problems, but developing their signature strengths. In the clip you just heard, you may have noticed that you can be happy in three different ways. The key to maintaining happiness in the pleasant life is using the skill of variation and spacing to continue enjoying life's pleasures. The week four audio clip called Air Talk Satisfaction talks about this phenomenon and offers suggestions on how to maximize life's pleasures. Although much of the recommendations in this class are designed to get you to a higher level of happiness, regardless of which type of happiness category you fall into, I realize that the good life and the meaningful life are two types of happiness that I personally would like to see people move towards. This is because these are two types of happiness that, offers more, that offer more than just a fleeting shot of a brain chemical dopamine to make you feel temporarily good. The good life and the meaningful life offer you a lasting, more transcendent perspective on life. And research seems to suggest that using your signature strengths towards the good life or the meaningful life may offer you a more lasting happiness than the pleasures associated with the pleasant life. The next clip will be from the book Stumbling on Happiness by Daniel Gilbert. Daniel Gilbert offers a nifty twist on what Martin Seligman classifies as the three types of happiness. He takes a look at the meaning of the word itself. When we say the word happiness, 
do we just mean feeling good, or does it mean more than that? Mr. Gilbert per- contends that happiness is far more than simply a feeling and gives a wonderful explanation on this perspective. Freud was an articulate champion of this idea, but not its originator, and the same observation appears in some form or another in the psychological theories of Plato, Aristotle, Hobbes, Mill, Bentham, and others. The philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal was especially clear on this point. He wrote, All men seek happiness, this is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Feeling Happy Because If every thinker in every century has recognized that people seek emotional happiness, then how has so much confusion arisen over the meaning of the word? One of the problems is that many people consider the desire for happiness to be a bit like the desire for a bowel movement, something we all have, but not something of which we should be especially proud. The kind of happiness they have in mind is cheap and base, a vacuous state of bovine contentment that can't possibly be the basis of a meaningful human life. As the philosopher John Stuart Mill wrote, it is better to be a human being dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. Better to be Socrates dissatisfied than a fool satisfied. And if the fool or the pig are a different opinion, it is because they only know their own side of the question. The philosopher Robert Nozick tried to illustrate the ubiquity of this belief by describing a fictitious virtual reality machine that would allow anyone to have any experience they chose, and that would conveniently cause them to forget that they were hooked up to the machine. He concluded that no one would willingly choose to get hooked up for the rest of his life because the happiness he would experience with such a machine wouldn't be happiness at all. Someone whose emotion is based upon egregiously unjustified and false evaluations we will be reluctant to term happy, however he feels. In short, emotional happiness is fine for pigs, but it's a goal unworthy of creatures as sophisticated and capable as we. Now let's take a moment to think about the difficult position that someone who holds this view is in, and let's guess how they might resolve it. If you considered it perfectly tragic for life to be aimed at nothing more substantive and significant than a feeling, and yet you couldn't help but notice that people spend their days seeking happiness, then what might you be tempted to conclude? Bingo. You might be tempted to conclude that the word happiness doesn't indicate a good feeling, but rather that it indicates a very special good feeling that can only be produced by very special means. For example, by living one's life in a proper, moral, meaningful, deep, rich, Socratic, and non-pig-like way. Now that would be the kind of feeling one wouldn't be ashamed to strive for. In fact, the Greeks had a word for this kind of happiness, eudaimonia, which translates literally as good spirit, but which probably means something more like human flourishing or life well lived. For Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, and even Epicurus, a name usually associated with piggish happiness, the only thing that could induce that kind of happiness was the virtuous performance of one's duties, with the precise meaning of virtuous left for each philosopher to work out for himself. The ancient Athenian legislator, Solon, suggested that one could not say that a person was happy until the person's life had ended because happiness is the result of living up to one's potential. And how can we make such a judgment until we see how the whole thing turns out? A few centuries later, Christian theologians added a nifty twist to this classical conception. Happiness was not merely the product of a life of virtue, but the reward for a life of virtue, and that reward wasn't necessarily to be expected 
in this lifetime. For 2,000 years, philosophers have felt compelled to identify happiness with virtue because that's the sort of happiness they think we ought to want. And maybe they're right. It sounds like Daniel Gilbert's explanation of what happiness really is links up rather nicely with Martin Seligman's meaningful life. Daniel Gilbert is taking a longer view of happiness. It's one that's grounded in history and philosophy. That's because even though we may try very hard to be unique and independent of the basic human themes that's occupied mankind for centuries, when all is said and done, humans all desire the same thing, happiness. The challenge seems to be how we will define that topic.